Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Mad Shwedan. He's a full-time investor with over 30 years of experience. 15 years ago, he founded his firm, Geo Investing. This is all noteworthy because he has survived many different market environments over the last few decades. He hunts in the arena of the market that is ignored by Wall Street, namely microcaps. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me here. This is awesome. I know we've been planning on doing this for a long time, or maybe a few months, not like years, but decades. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. So how'd you first get the investing bug? Yeah, that's... I go back and I always think about this. I hope I tell the same story the same way every time, but it goes back to my youth. My dad was an investor. He still invests today. And he was a part-time investor, but he was always an entrepreneur in terms of my eyes. Yeah. He worked for a pharmaceutical sales rep com a company as a, as a sales rep, and then he started his own business. And then, but he was always the whole time like investing in the markets and stuff. He moved to, I think he moved to America from Lebanon in 1969 and it was pretty cool to watch it. He would actually, he, we had a, you know, a house in the suburbs. He would he'd be in the basement with his little man cave doing his research. And that's where you do it. And we would watch the TV together on the PBS. It was a, a channel program, I think, called the Nightly Business Report. And at that time was Paul Kangas. I used to host it. And it would break down. I don't know if it was a half hour show or an hour show, I forget. But it, it would it was cool about it. It would break down the markets, right? But he would interview maybe analysts and, and investors once in a while on there. So and managed and CEOs. You got, I got to see a little bit of that. Which I thought that was cool while he was doing it. And so I watched it with my dad and I was interested in it. And I was probably just watching with him to show off in the, in the beginning, not really having an interest in it. And then along the way, when I was in high school, I think maybe it was 11th grade or so. And uh, that was economics class. And name Mr. Knight, I forgot his first name. He was an elderly gentleman at the time. And I, all of a sudden he gets, he just makes an announcement. Hey, we're going to do an investment contest already. And uh, I just happened to have a Wall Street Journal in my hand. I don't know why. And I'm just, again, showing off. <laughs> I had no idea what that was all about. And he looks at me, okay, you came prepared. I had no idea. And um, so it was a $100,000 mock portfolio. So that's when I said, okay, let me see what I can do with this. And the first stock, I just went, like, how do I do this? And I just looked in this, I just looked going down the alphabet and I found this company, oh, storage technology company, you gotta be good. But that was the extent of my research. And uh, I and I did a, little, a tiny bit. I did some just storage, some stuff, backup storage. And I decided, okay. I went to my teacher. And I said, hey, Mister Knight, what do you think about this stock? Oh, it looks like a pretty good one. Let's check it out. So I, I put all my money in. I went, I went all in. I went high conviction. It's not my. It's fake money. Why not? <laughs> when I win this thing, and well, that's the way you win those things. You have. You need some high. You need some wild outcome. That's yeah. what I was hoping for. Yeah. And they went. They were bankrupt. I bought them already. They were already. <laughs> they were already in chapter eleven bankruptcy when I bought it. And I go to my teacher. You told me to buy this thing. He said, "He's a first lesson learned. Do your own research." So that was a pretty cool little kind of introduction into it. And then I get into college. And I now I I was even before college though I. Used, that got me a little bit of the bug. I said, I want my revenge. I want to know, learn more about this whole thing. I was, would watch my dad emerge from the basement one time and he would come out and say, hey, I got this interesting stock. He just announced it to everybody. I got this and it, I would not recognize it. It wasn't like an IBM or any kind of, it was like a smaller company or just a greetings or something. Okay. So I started 
getting the kind of like a nano cap bug at that time. Like, there's these other small companies besides large companies. It's intrigued me a little bit. And uh, I, I started getting I got a job actually at a greeting card company in my neighborhood because my dad was looking at a greeting card company to buy one of these smaller ones. So I just, so I started doing that research, right? Going starting on the boots to learn about the industry a little bit and how it works. And then my dad gave me a one up on Wall Street to read when I was like, I get to college fast forward. I, haven't, I had not invested yet, but I was still dancing around it. Getting to college, my dad gives me my first year or two, he gives me a one up on Wall Street, Peter Lynch to read. I just, just fell in love. And I wasn't the greatest student in high school. I got in, I went to college, I you know, got into Temple and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. There weren't a lot of things I could do yet. At least I thought in my mind at that time. I didn't have, I really never thought about it. But I know I liked the entrepreneur route. I knew I liked that kind of thing. And I wasn't a great worker bee, <laughs> per se. And after I read that book, I was like, wow, I wonder if I could do this full time one day. So that was basically the impetus. I think that might have been maybe 1990 ish or 89. I graduated from high school in 88. So from that point on is when I really started digging my heels in. This is really good. I read that book twice really fast. Uh, I remember going, I was, he gave me the book right before I went on vacation, a uh, road trip with my buddy from, uh, this, this, by the way, the settings in the Philadelphia area and the suburbs of Philadelphia, King of Prussia. We do a road trip from King of Prussia all the way to Florida, actually Alabama, uh, then Florida. My buddy wanted to see his grandparents, but I just, all I, th all I could think about was, shoot, I didn't bring my freaking book with me. <laughs> and I couldn't wait to get back and just get back into it again. And that kind of set it all off. And Peter Lynch wrote that book and it was really easy for me to understand. I didn't have a finance background per se. It was just really easy for me to understand just the concepts he was talking about, the buy what you know. So I spent a lot of time at that point doing what Peter, going to retail stores and the malls, watching people, talking to the sales reps and counting customers going in and out of places. And that's kind of how it began. And I got that bug there. And the first stock I actually bought, and I was actually in college still, by the way, and ended up being storage technology. So they came out of bankruptcy, right? So I was going to oh, get wow. What a funny twist of fate. And yeah, and I mean, it wasn't like a bolt that bag. It was like, I made 65% of my money on it. Okay, Great. pretty interesting. Right out of the gates. And now you're like, oh, wow, this is easy, right? <laughs> so, but it's not. During college, I would actually go to these. I actually still have the code. I made money in store technology. I went out and bought a ski jacket. I still have that jacket somewhere as my like memoir of memorabilia of that first hit. And I knew at that point, okay, my goal really at first was, okay, I want to work in the industry, in the stock industry, where you want on Wall Street. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a broker or where I wanted to be, but I decided you know, I need to get some exposure to the industry a little bit. And I still during college, I got some, my cousin's friend worked at, at that time, Dean Witter. And I got like an intern there call calling and getting to feel what it would be like to be a broker. And I realized this isn't really about stock picking. It's more about relationships and maybe not putting people in the stocks that I want them to be in. It was just a whole different game. I didn't like the whole call calling part of it, but I got exposed to research. I got exposed to all this wonderful stuff. And at that time, if you're going back in time again, right, we're in the late eighties, early nineties, and it's... The internet isn't here yet. And I didn't, most people didn't have exposure to a lot of this. The, re the retail part guy didn't have exposure to some of the stuff that I had in the brokerage. And I saw what it, the value of that information was. The value line with the S&P tear sheets and looking at earnings reports, analyst reports, even press releases, right? You couldn't really have a good source of that at that time. I understand how valuable having information like that was, which was, like, I think, a good lesson for me. So I never really got piggy on information. That's just a if I want to throw that in there, there's a lot of people out there looking for free information all the time. And there's a lot of good free stuff out there, but don't get too picky. Pay for good information too. Get that edge. And uh, that was a really important part of my journey as I was moving through it. But yeah, so I realized I didn't want to be a broker. I came out of college, worked at Vanguard. 
from 1992 to 1994. I started there full time originally. And of course, I was investing along the way. My goal really was to save up enough money into where I could maybe do this full time. But while I was at Vanguard, I was like, maybe let me get exposure to this industry, the mutual industry. Maybe I want to go that fund manager route one day and work for like a Vanguard or Fidelity or something one day. And I just didn't like the corporate environment. And it worked out like Vanguard's a lot of index funds. So that really wasn't a great place to be, I think, if you wanted to be an active manager, at least. Yeah. So did that resonate with you at all? I guess it didn't. The indexing message of Vanguard? No, I didn't like it at all, right? Yeah. And the thing is, that didn't go well. I spent a lot, like the first the first six months there was really, I was basically working the phones and what they called their, I forgot what it was, but you basically, you, people would call up and you would talk about the funds and try and match the funds with the profile of the company person calling, right? But you're just sitting there taking phone calls all the time and just took the job and just, just to get exposure. And I, I just didn't, I would spend most of my time like, okay, how do I get out of this particular position? And at Vanguard, it, would t- it was going to be a long time to get where I had to get to. And I just, so I made a really quick kind of pivot while I was there that I want to basically just save enough money, maybe 20, 30 grand in that area. I think it was like 30,000 bucks I wanted to get to. I did math. I wasn't going to have a lot of living expenses. And I think if I could start with that base, I could try to make a run of the full-time investor thing. And it was funny while I was there, that was while I was at Vanguard, all I would do really is just do reason. Even when I was there, I would do stock research. And I would, by that time I was already interviewing management teams, my spare time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would get my scripts ready and it just wasn't a great situation for me to be there. And I, I remember one time I was sitting in a, so during my lunch break that I would do a lot of my research. When I decided to go after six months, I got to go part-time. So Vanguard was cool because they were really good with their employees and they had a great program that if you're six months, they would still give you full benefits at, at part-time. It was a situation where I would work from, I think it was 4.30 to nine o'clock or eight o'clock or something, some kind of weird shift. Mm-hmm. So get my benefits, and that way I could post up in an office close by and start trading and start having getting into this kind of full time investor thing. So that was awesome because I would I would invest and do research during the day, and then at nighttime work at Vanguard. So it allowed me to start getting into my passion there a little bit, and I did that for the next like year and a half while I saved enough money up to become a full time investor eventually. And I saved, I think I saved 30,000. And well, there was a pretty interesting, while I was at Vanguard, I would use the lunch break time to go interview companies. And I would it's use really the con- conference rooms, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> so your day job, you're talking to basically regular Vanguard investors looking to invest in mutual funds. And then you're going away at lunchtime and you're talking to CEOs of companies. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When I was there, when I was doing, when I was there in a full-time gig, yeah, that first six months, that's what I would do. And I was, I remember being in that conference room one day and all of a sudden they were never used on my floor. I sit there eating a salami sandwich and feet on the desk, whatever, and table. And I think Brennan walks in (laughs) with his bunch of people. I guess they needed a room and, oh, this isn't going to go well. (laughs) This isn't going to go well. Not like an hour later, a memo is already out there. You can't use the conference rooms. So then I started using the each, these are all like, if you can think of, you know, cubby hole offices and then you'd have rows of cubbies and then. With any, maybe after every four or five, there'd be a desk with a phone on it, right? Let me try using that. <laughs> so I started using, and I, I didn't care. I was in the middle. I just didn't care who, who saw me anymore at that point. And uh, that got banned. <laughs> <laughs> so they were just on to you every step of the way. <laughs> yeah. It was a very, I don't think I came, I wasn't really Wall Street type. I wasn't the corporate type. It was a little, a little out of the norm there. And a lot of people there were, right? And I remember they ran an, an investment contest, but a bunch of people there and they, and they invited me to be in it. 
And I bought, like, I think it was a claim entertainment options and, and some other like small cap stocks at the time. And they're like, what are you doing, man? I actually won the contest. I never got, they never paid me by the way. Oh no. <laughs> they all got pissed at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who was this kid? That was pretty funny. I, I, then imagine I just like when they, when they told me it was going to take the, the, the timeline eventually that was going to take me to get to be becoming a managing money. I decided I'm going to go that part-time route. And that was really a, a really cool thing. And I think it was 1994, February, I had ended up leaving Vanguard. And the cool thing about that was I was actually doing other odd jobs too. I was working at Vanguard part-time at night. And the weekends, I was working at like a some kind of shoe store thing, discount shoe store. Like maybe I think it was made in Payless or something like that. And I was doing import-export business, basically exporting jeans, Levi jeans from the U.S. over to overseas. I had a connection out there. Anything I could to make that get to my $30,000 mark. And I finally got there and in February of 94. And I remember like the first month being able to have like full focus on doing this. I doubled that money. I was like, wow, this is been a month. Yeah. It was crazy. Wow. You know, I was like, I made more money. I wasn't making much money at Vanguard at that time. Cause I was, and, but I made more than I would have made at Vanguard really all year there in that one month. And I was like, okay, this is the right move. Hmm. So that's how that kind of set it up. And that sent me a motion to really hunker down and, and become a understand investing and become a better investor and, and take go down that full-time investing route when you doubled your money was that due mostly to one position or was it just a lot of things in the portfolio going well yeah i think like i came from that peter lynch book right he would own over a thousand thousand stocks at times so i was pretty diversified hmm. i wasn't a very concentrated investor and at that time at least but a lot of times it would come from a few positions but i was fairly diversified it was all really at that time when I first got into investing. I wasn't a nano cap investor out of the gate. Oh, I was mess, maybe a lot of investing a lot of mid cap and even small cap stuff. The range, Polygram, and even the Claim Entertainment, which was a video game. They were a small cap at that time. But I didn't get small. I don't know when it happened, but in that first two years, ninety four, ninety six, somewhere along that way is when it happened. Mm -hmm. I just started getting more into it, and I think it was just that. Well, I basically part of my process at the time was tracking momentum stocks. I would basically con combine momentum with value, basically. Oh, okay. So kind of like the investor's business daily kind of style. Correct. And when I was doing that, I wasn't aware. I really wasn't aware of IBD or the can slim at that time. And I remember me when I was at this and going back to college a little bit here is there was a guy, a person I ran into and he's what you're doing there sounds a little bit like the IBD thing. Hmm. So then I started like, okay, this is pretty cool. So that opened my eyes a little bit more that this could work. So when I tried to get into this, I was tracking new highs and new lows. How do you, there's 20,000 stocks out there. So to me, there wasn't a lot of software for me to do a lot of screening and stuff. So I, how do I just narrow the list, this list down of, of stocks? And I started tracking new highs, new lows. And I didn't see like a big difference in return by just blindly buying new highs and new lows. So that unfortunately burst my bubble. But I did realize that the stocks hitting highs were interesting stories. And I wasn't ready to be this kind of, that part of my career, this Solving problems, knowing these companies hitting lows and running into issues and understanding turnaround stories and these things. But I wanted to find interesting stories that have momentum that were going through special types of growth inflection points. And a lot of those stocks ended up being new highs, but a lot of them ended up being these smaller companies where I saw the value. I started seeing, even though it was almost by default, I would start finding these. If I was looking at a large cap company hitting a new high versus a smaller company, 
I just found the value proposition to be better on these smaller companies. And that's how I started getting into it. And then my dad actually, going back to him, he had bought the stock and I was like, I couldn't, I was looking for this. Where is it? And, he's, and I was looking at the Wall Street Journal and because it wasn't on the, on the main lists. And he said, oh no, this is an OTC. I'm like, what's an o- what's a pink sheet of company, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> and that stock was like a five bagger for him. Like, oh, oh wow. God. And I said, I got to do this. I got to look over there more. So I started getting deep into the woods there. I also, by the way, invested in, I was participating in like this a USA investment contest thing at the time, USA mm-hmm. Today newspaper. And I started playing around with small caps doing that too, kind of getting um, involved in understanding the risk there before putting a lot of real money into it. Awesome. And you delved into the micro and the nano cap space, so you still operate there. So what do you feel are the advantages of operating at those smaller market caps? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. There's a lot of them, right? But when you, when you boil it down, there's less competition for information. There's just less people looking at the stocks and less now, more so, so than ever, really. So you don't have your institutional investors looking at these stocks because they can't invest in them potentially, either because they're not allowed to from their charter or they're just too big of investors that they, know they, they believe that they can't put enough money to work for it to affect their returns, right? So right. you have a lot, and then the media is continually putting stuff out there that there's there. This is a a fraudulent, high risk area. So you retail a lot of retail investors ignore it. So you you're basically competing with a lot of other maybe I wouldn't less sophisticated investors. There are a lot of great investors in the micro space and sophisticated, but there's less of them, right? So it just makes it easier to find information before others. And then you have this access to management on the, when you're investing in the smaller cap companies. That you don't have in large, we're not going to be able to call up a CEO of Google, you know, or Apple, or any, or the whole management team and interview them. But you can do it in the microcap world, and you put those two things together, you got a really interesting thing. The information disconnects that occur in the microcap space is it's ridiculous. I mm-hmm. could go case study by case study to show you how this free public information is sitting there, waiting to be picked up and realized, and. Even today, where you think you have all this efficiency of information, mm-hmm. it's still inefficient. It's inefficient because less and less people are investing in these stocks or can. And if they don't care about that information, eventually that information doesn't matter because if the information is going to materially affect the value of the company, at some point that matters, right? And you have enough of people like myself and other you know, investors buying the stock, eventually bidding the stock up, getting it to a level where others can invest in it. So- now you also, by the way, have this since 2008, and then you know you had the this 2022 calamity. You have a lot of investors who retail people who used to invest in these stocks. They exit the market too. So that all that helps. Now that the bad news on this, by the way, man, is that it can take longer for these stocks to go up because there's less people hunting for them mm-hmm. than 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 before, and their valuations don't get maybe to where you want to want them to get to. Right. But but so that's something we can talk about. But I think we're seeing a lot of that today, frustration. But Back to the efficiency thing. So when you look at it, for example, a company, for example, there was this company called Evans Sutherland. And these, by the way, there's a lot of real companies here with real revenue in the cap space. People unfortunately associate the size of the market cap with the size of the company, the quality of the company. But you have companies in, that are billion-dollar revenue companies that are microcaps. You have leaders in the industry, leaders that are actually caps. So they're out there. We call those big cap micro caps at geo-investing. Right. These are large kind of reven- respectable revenue generating companies trading as micro or nano caps. Hmm. But to give you an example of, of an edge here, man. So 
Now, the edge, if you're a, if I was like a beginner investor and wanted to get involved in this space, right, in the nano cap area, you can do it very, you can start getting success early by just by doing easy things, understanding basic valuation and how to look at a stock, right? And what's important in terms of earnings growth, sales growth, whatever parameters you want to use, but then bringing ideas into your funnel, into your funnel with a press release, sec.gov, if you're looking at US or SEDAR, if you're looking at Canada, S-E-D-A-R, all that site sucks. And then conference call <laughs> transcripts. You can put all those together. You can find some just great information disconnections. They're getting your pipeline full of great stuff. So you mentioned that basically microcaps are less efficient. It sounds like you're saying they were more efficient when you started in the 90s. Am I reading that right? I think, look, I don't have proof of that, right? I will say this, that there was a, for these, the type of stocks that like these value nano caps, right. it seems that there, there, was, there was a little more, definitely more interest in them. I don't know if you want to call that inefficiency or, ineff or efficiency, but there certainly is, if you look at some of the speed at which some of these companies would, re would fill in that information gap, I feel it's different today than it was then. And I don't know if it's a matter of inefficiency or a matter of just less people looking at the stocks. It sounds uh, like there's less people looking at them. So why do you think that changed? Well, that changed, I think, a, a few things. And I think there's a lot of people with different opinions on this. But of course, the advent of index funds, right? Passive investing. So a lot of stock right. picking that occurred back in the day, the stock picking occurred in the smaller cap companies. As people have moved more to a passive kind of strategy, investing in index funds like Vanguard, for example, or ETFs, I think less of, and a lot of those type of medians, mediums of investing are less focused on the smaller capital area, right? Gotcha. So okay. That can be, that's part of it there. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I forgot the name of the podcast. And they were talking about how the incredible, the massive amount of less and less money going into small caps over the last decade or 15 years. And it was crazy. There's been an outflow into these more, into more passive kind of larger cap strategies. So I think that's part of it. But a lot of it too, man, is if you look at just the whole, there's, there's many reasons that the environment's changed. So let's step back a little bit to 2008. That was like the first kind of really shook out a lot of investors. So when you had the 2008 crisis, if you were investing in nano caps then and you were using margin, these liquid companies, you just got annihilated in the crash. Right. And it was annihilation that none, no one had ever seen, right? I was through different crises like dot-com and the currency crisis, but something like that where it was it all happened in an instant was crazy. And I think that just spooked a lot. And that, that basically, if you were a casual investor in the space, you got spooked out. You may have lost all, you may have lost all your money. Never really wanted to even hear the word matter cap anymore. Right. If there were funds investing in these companies, they're like, forget this crap. It's not worth it. Maybe and potentially that you know the rules allowing them to do it might have changed. So you eliminated a lot of investors off the bat there. And that environment really and then really lasted for a long time throughout that since the crisis. And you saw an eventual return to it going into 17, 18, 19, 18, 19, it took that long. And then 2020 came along COVID and everybody was buying those stocks, right? <laughs> right. Now you had the meme stock mania, which was the opposite of OAN. <laughs> right. Yeah. You actually had a potential resurgence. We had 10 million new retail investors come into market in 2020. And a lot of them were buying these Meyer caps, right? Gotcha. Um, okay. And then you had the, the destruction now since, you know, 2022, and that just set everything back, the clock back again. Hmm. And I think you just, and the issue you had here was you had a lot of these really crappy companies going up, right? And people investing in them. And for the last 15 years prior to 2022, everybody was just used to being able to buy these stocks or story stocks or growing revenue, not earnings. And 
getting used to that, right? Mm-hmm. And if you were investing in those kind of nano caps, what which were the ones that were doing better? It's like the old school value stocks weren't really doing that well between the 2009 to 2020 recovery for that right. period of time there until 20 came along. But it was basically so you have this whole like class of investors that were used to those type of gains coming from less quality kind of companies. And they were pumping bombs, biotechs. There was this like risk on because rates were low, right? Right. So easy money policies. You could borrow money at will. You could raise money at will. And it just fueled a lot of speculation in these less quality companies. And they're willing to actually do more promotions too, by the way. So now all those people are not knowing what are they doing. So they got 2.0 again. They got killed. They got killed in this market. And you're losing investors there again now, right? It's almost like a, we can't take it anymore. And yeah. Just end the pain. End the pain, right. But the cool thing that's going on right now, and which if you're looking at the indexes, you're not seeing it. Let me, let me pull some stats up real quick here because I don't have the top of my head. The divergence between the market cap return and the equal weight return. Yeah, well, yeah. Basically, there's this underbelly and quality. Like the indexes aren't going to basically filter for quality, right? You could, mm-hmm. if you're building your own kind of nano cap index that's based on quality and not market cap necessarily, where quality is the main type of strategy-driven index, right? Basically, in the nano cap space versus just a pure index, you're not going to see. So what you're seeing here is I haven't done delve into the study to see what how these index what, what kind of really stocks are all in, in these indexes in terms of quality and stuff. But the thing is, my suspicion is that a lot of companies that came up in the indexes over the last many years were always it's more market cap based, right? Not so much quality based. All those companies are going down, right? And what you're seeing right now is a comeback on value stocks, especially mm-hmm. nano cap value. And you're yeah. seeing those stocks do very well, actually. If you look at the indexes, you're not going to see that. Right. That's really, if you look at the stats on that, I can give you, so this was basically as of um, a couple months ago, I think. So I was, I basically created this little index about 18 months ago or so to start like really going back and looking, going back to this really, what worked for me that first 20 years of my career before the OA came along. Mm-hmm. And that was basically momentum plus like GARP. That was really what I was doing. So finding momentum stocks that were undervalued, that were going through a period of growth, maybe that was going to last certain, maybe 18 months to two years. Kind of. So this is a screen? Yeah. It's, okay. I would I track new highs, right? Momentum, mm-hmm. three-month highs and 12-month highs, basically. And then that's the extent of my kind of screen for my technical screen, if you will. Okay. And then from there, I look at each stock. I don't trust screens in nanocap space. Hmm. Because you got to do a lot of adjustment of numbers, non-gap numbers, and these things. I want to read the narrative. I'm very big on reading narrative. I go by each stock. And of course, I'll screen for, do some kind of light screens there and for quality of balance sheet and income statement and stuff. But I even want to, I'm very anal about that, man. Like, I want to read a press release because even if it screens badly, I want to know if there's a reversal coming soon, right? I'm really looking at each stock one by one. My process is these stocks come on a list. I read press release, SEC documents, and, and conference call transcripts, and then you know, I filter out some of the you know bad capital structure ones, and I just make that list. Oh, and it's pretty intensive. And then from that, I create like this. I call it, we were calling it the passive index. It was Cliff Note Index. I, I take and then I make notes on these stocks. Right. I take these stocks. I have maybe a paragraph of notes. My Cliff Notes. 
So I have this whole like list of cliff notes and I, I make this passive index. And so if you look, for example, the Russell at that time, this is two months going, when I started doing the stats here, like the Russell was down 5.3% over this period of time. So basically, I launched this thing in February of 22. And the Russell was on the NASDAQ was up 1.9 over that period of time. The LD micro is, was down 14.8%, and the planet microcap index was down 15%. So you look at the strategy I was using, it was up 20%. So wow. That time, and the high return was actually 62%. Now, there were 70 stocks on this list, and there still are basically. Mm -hmm. I think 15 of them had doubled, right? 70% went up at least 20%. Okay, this is really interesting. So now what happens is we start using that index, right? That passive index and start doing a moderately active index, like pulling out stocks we know that shouldn't belong there in there anymore, right? I just wanted to see what would happen by doing nothing at first. And then, okay, now there's about like now a 6% alpha I'm getting from this active strategy over the passive now. And I think it's going to get better. But what this is teaching you is this is really interesting because this is over 70 stocks, right? And it's going to grow. I'm, I'm making this high quality passive index, right? And it's mm -hmm. going to grow and grow over time. And then when I have the passive index, now I'm playing around with the active index, which brings in the more timely stocks from there. I'm going to continue playing that out a little bit. But remember this, the Jim O'Shaughnessy, What Works on Wall Street, mm -hmm. did a study on Meyercap, yeah. right? And, and it shows over this decades of stats there that you have this like eight point, the smallest decile, of the market has over the largest decile over that time frame has an 8.2% compound annual return advantage. Right. Yeah, so, it's a huge size advantage there. Yeah, for doing nothing, right? Yeah, you could just buy a basket of microcaps and theoretically over time it would outperform. I guess if you go into that market and then you say, okay, I'm going to weed out profitability, I'm going to look for quality, I'm going to look for valuation and better balance sheets, I imagine that would do way better than the overall index. Right, exactly, and that and that's what this. And I think also, I don't know, I don't think Jim he might exclude some really small companies too. I'm not sure, but is what is so there were some stocks he probably wasn't even including in that were too small mm -hmm. that the retail investor could or maybe too liquid that the retail investor could get an advantage from. So it definitely shows, yeah, that you can go in there and find the better quality. But it also shows though, man, is like diversification in this space. Like this was by the way equally weighted index that I did. I wasn't like weighting it at all. Mm -hmm. I do have a weighted index. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's it's totally underperforming. Hmm. You know, I'm picking. I'm trying to pick the best twelve stocks, right? Because even the active one still has about fifty stocks on it. So what I'm getting at here is that you already have this great great advantage in investing in nano caps, right? If you do it right, just mm -hmm. by doing nothing, actually, Jim's showing you you get this advantage. And then if you build upon a strategy that works on top of that. You can, you know, maybe beat that advantage. But what I'm learning is potentially a just a very sleepy, very diversified small positions across the best stocks might be better than a I don't want to say better, but is an interesting strategy versus a, a concentrated strategy. Hmm. And it's working here to some degree right now, at least. Now I do believe in taking big bets too, right? So I have a I have a lot of that going on too. But this is very interesting that if this study keeps playing out the way I think it's going to play. And it's basically how I invested that first 20 years of my career. I was very diversified back then, and it reminded me of why I worked back then. This wouldn't have worked between 15 and 2022 when these stocks are just out of favor. Mm. But here's the most important point. The, the point of this discussion, I think, really is this is also showing that GARP is back, and there's a reason it's back. Quality is here. We have a higher rates. We have a more normal, I would think, like an environment, right? Investing. Yeah. And... 
the market's going to crave quality. And that's why this strategy, I think, is going to work for years to come. That 15-year pocket we had here of this, that, that easy money, which was elastic, it wasn't the norm, right? Right. And the sooner people realize, investors realize that's not the norm, stop waiting for it to happen again and start looking at these kind of things I'm, we're talking about here today. Mm-hmm. The sooner you can like, get in, you trounce the market, I think. So getting into this methodology, if you were to construct a checklist of things to look for in a quality microcap, what would be in that checklist? Yeah. So I have basically, I have two checklists I use and I love checklists per se, but I think it definitely helps to some degree, right? To give a framework. Right. Yeah. And we do that. So I have these two checklists uh, that we created at Geo over time. And one is called, we call the tier one quality microcap. Okay. And the other checklist is that we have this multi-bagger checklist, which is basically eight markers right now, but it's, it's growing. And we look at those two things together to determine if we're finding a tier one company at the right time. And when I say right time, it could be anything from a short-term potential or to a multi-bagger opportunity over the next three, four years, right? Right. And so we can go with those two lists here real quick. And then we have several different strategy buckets we employ across that, that we do there. But if you look at the, the tier one qualities that we look for, right? And it's going to seem very obvious to you. But just having that list and using it, I think is really important. Oh, I totally agree. So the first one is obviously is you want, I'm looking for these companies. And this is a really important part of the two here, man. These companies that have been around for a long time. So I'm looking for these smaller cap companies and sleepy companies that have been around for 30, 40, something, 50 years. And why am I doing that as opposed to looking at newer companies? So we've all, I think you've probably come across that stat where it's the time horizon of investors has, in terms of how long they stay in an investment, has significantly decreased from, I think it used to be six, oh, seven, yeah. six seven years, and so now it's six months maybe. If that. Yeah, it's plummeted. It's even, I think it's even less than that. It's really crazy. Which is ridiculous, right? And that kind of parlays, I believe, into some of the management teams, the newer ones. You have to basically accommodate what the investor wants, right? <laughs> so you might have these teams that do things that aren't in the best interest for the company long term. Or you might have them do these you know, promotional kind of campaigns, spend more money on IR and less money on putting into the business to grow the company. Think about that for a second. Think if you're going to basically spend money on IR, go to all these conferences, what is that going to cost? I mean, you know, if you're, if you're spending seven to $10,000 a month on IR, maybe, right? Then going to conferences, that's money you could probably hire a couple of sales reps for your company, right? Yeah, definitely. Or have your own internal IR guy. So that's any, but then it just, it just and it also it can get you into these companies that are basically pushing the envelope and accounting and you got fraud issues, right? So there's this interesting spirit with these older school kind of management teams that have been around for a long time. They might not be the best in terms of understanding how to grow the company in the new environment that they're in, but they understand how important maximizing shareholder value is a lot of them. Do you think that looking for microcaps with a long operating history like that is a good way to avoid like the seedier side of it, like the pump and dumps and things like that? Yeah, I really do. It's a great first step for sure. You know, now, that's not obviously a blueprint, right? It's one of the tier one qualities that you would you look at. And then what, then we obviously, the number two is we want to look for good management teams that have a good, that just are just good at what they do, right? That's just, and that's just comes from either they've done it in the past, they have a great track record, maybe there's a team that works together from the past that's doing it again somewhere else. Now, I don't mind a new team coming in, for example. To, so a lot of times what will happen is you'll have these long, these companies have been around for a long time and they, they need new management, right? At some point, 
they might need new kind of blood to invigorate the growth, but you already have that culture and the policies already set into the company that kind of can permeate into new management teams, right? That come in. A lot of those management teams, that new management from those situations come from within also the company. Okay. And which is good. But the cool thing about those is that these companies all, they're seasoned. They've already proven they can survive through different market environments, right? And economic environments. They've probably built a nice solid customer base of little customers. And there's ways basically to start getting more revenue, you know, from that kind of reputation and finding new markets for growth. Sometimes you need new blood coming in to basically help find those situations. It's not that sometimes like older companies don't have the best, the right manager team in it already, but you got a great launching pad for a new team to come in that has maybe more vision to take the company to a new level of growth. So that's an important part of it too. And then of course you got, we're looking for companies that are you know, generating revenue. It can be a small amount of revenue. It can be two, three million revenue. Just to show me your actual, I don't want a development stage company, but then we're not looking for those. We're obviously looking for companies that are generating, you know, uh, that are near generating profitability or right around it. We're looking for companies with clean, clean balance sheets. We're, we're very, capital structure is really important for us. We're, we look for these companies that have a low outstanding share count, generally under 50 million, the less the better. That shows me that the, the management or the company with history has not overly diluted the company, right? They've been able to grow internally without having to continually go tap the capital market. Yeah, um, you don't want to get diluted, right? It's, it's just it's and then, and it just shows it gives you like a it's a window into the soul of the company. How it's an interesting litmus test that shows me that they haven't been continually failing on their maybe failing on their plan potentially and having to continually raise money to do it. So it gives me an idea maybe how well they've they've been you know growing uh, managing the company. We like actually these high probability turnaround stories. Even though a turnaround isn't a tier one quality, we, but if we are looking at a tier one, we want it to be a high probability turnaround. And there's things we look for on that. And of course, insider ownership is really important to us too. And one really important thing is goes into everything we talked about earlier about management is we're looking for management teams that care about more about the managing the business than managing the stock price. So we, we want them to be, be honed in on the company, right? right? Don't worry so much about your stock price too much. Generate earnings and your stock's going to go up. It's that simple. <laughs> And that's what they should be concentrating on. And right now it's tough because you have this short-term mentality and there's investors every day coming at these companies, their shareholders. You need to do more IR, right? You need to spend more money on this and promotions. And that's only short-term. Right. And they want the business results to speak for themselves without having to go out there and promote it. Correct. So the best companies I've invested in uh, haven't uh, never did a roadshow. Don't do any IR at all. <laughs> I know this was one company, RWI, ran worldwide, a sleepy OTC company. Doing, I think, three, four million in revenue and the stock. If you look at the chart, that stock from, I think it's went from one dollar to twenty five bucks in the last few years. Wow! And it's OTC. They're the, they're the biggest reseller of Autodesk software, ADSK, and they barely they don't even talk. They, they don't do anything talking. No no press releases on on the major wires about their earnings. I haven't seen them at the conference circuit. Never returned my calls. <laughs> I still bought it. <laughs> the stock did fine. They do still report their financials. I just think that's just a great case study of like how show me the money, right? Yeah. And that just works. So when you combine that with our multi-bagger checklist, which is a bunch of stuff we look for in a company while it's, we found a tier one company and we want to say, okay, well, what are we looking for now in conjunction with that to maybe help us? And there's a lot of markers there too. One of the biggest, what we like this, we call increasing wallet share. 
what happens a lot of times these older companies is they have this great customer base, right? But they haven't found a way to get more money from their customers. So doing that, finding ways just, and it makes sense, right? How do I get more revenue from customers that already trust me? And we think that that's a really great kind of multi-bagger flagger when you can find that sometimes. You introduce a new product line, which has higher margins maybe, right? So new services. Now we're looking for companies with strong operating leverage. When they do grow the revenue, their earnings are going to grow faster. Obviously, there's a downside to that too, right? If the revenues go down, your earnings fall faster too, right? <laughs> but if you find the company in the growth mode, operating leverage is great. Mm-hmm. We have no problem with investing in niche markets, really small markets where a company has a, a lot of command of that market. That's really, we love those situations. Um, of course, the early stages of a margin expansion cycle, because which kind of goes hand in hand with operating leverage. But that means you have multiple periods of earnings per share growth, which is good for the momentum in the stock. That kind of sounds like Monster Beverage 20 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I owned it for a double. <laughs> for, and, then, and then I sold it. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that, that was tough. That was back in the early 2000s area, right? Right. Yeah. That's when it really started to take off. But it, if I think back, it had all of those characteristics you're yeah, they, talking they, about. They didn't, I don't know if, I haven't looked at that dilution history, but I don't think they diluted much. No. It's a great, I remember calling those, calling them up because I was fresh off Peter Lynch and by what, when I used to drink the, the hands, because the symbol used to be H-A-N-S. Mm, natural, yeah. By the way, it's interesting. You know that, I don't know if you know this, but Monster was a chapter 11 exit. Yeah, in the early 90s, right? And then they were yeah. selling fruit juices back then. And then the management of the company decided to venture into this energy yeah. drink market, which was new at the time. So the best performing stock of the century was a Meyer cap, right? Mm-hmm. That came out of chapter 11, basically, <laughs> So, but which is pretty interesting. But I remember calling the company up to interview management. And actually, I was at that time, I was doing one-on-one kind of tutorials with people. And I gave this stock to that individual to call. And usually, I would go on the phone call with the person, and we would call to management. Let me let him do it by himself and give him, come back with his notes. He calls Monster up. We have a call later on, and he goes, hey, yeah, we're talking. And it was still handsome. I think it was still handsome, by the way, by then. It was H. And I had drank, and I was drinking the beverage in college, and I knew this, I knew the story. And he goes, they're launching this new thing, kind of energy drink. They're not sure it's going to take off. <laughs> so I decided to sell it, right? And then that was it. I decided to have it for any of the Monster beverage piece of it, which is a, I wouldn't have held the stock through this whole, it was, there was a lot of volatility there too, right? <laughs> along the way. Right. And then if you look at the, we look for companies then, there's four more traits here. Shifts to recurring model, revenue, recurring revenue model. If we can find those, we like those a lot. That gives more certainty and especially with investors these days, that's what they want. Improving capital structure. So we don't mind looking at companies with bad capital structures if they're going to get better, whether it's buying back stock, for example, or, or selling assets to pay down debt, whatever it might be. We like to examine market trends as it plays into the company's strength. For, and then, of course, there's acquisitions that can help accelerate growth for a company. And we like these nip and tuck acquisitions. But one of the things we really like doing is looking at these companies that seem risky on paper and not automatically avoiding them. So when we are doing our checklists and we find a stock maybe that looks like tier one-ish in a way, maybe has some multi-baggage, but has a lot of risk to it, we want to understand that those risks are going to improve over time. And because a lot of investors maybe are avoiding those companies. And that's how we believe we can get kind of maybe a jump on a, a story before the market does sometimes too. So if you have, if you look at the strategy buckets, let me, let me pull them up over here. So if you look like, for example, anything from a customer concentration, 
you might not want to be investing in a company that has a 90% customer concentration. But if you figured out a couple of things, number one, all right, well, are they going to maybe reduce that customer concentration through entering new markets, maybe making an acquisition to basically reduce that risk and that should hopefully give a valuation re-rate to the upside maybe over time. But also looking at customer concentration in terms of who are the customers, right? If you're, if you're selling one product to a customer where it's basically used internally for that company, that's one type of concentration, right? But if that customer is using your services to sell to all its customers, that's a little different. Hmm. Understanding that a little more is pretty you know, interesting too, dynamic. It might not be as concentrated as you, the market thinks it is. We love investing in Chapter 11 exits one of the, and companies resolving litigation. So we track companies that are you know, going through litigation and, and maybe coming out of them. Yeah, and that's um, probably a good opportunity for mispricing where people just have this fresh memory of when they went bankrupt and they just swear, they just swear them off forever. Right. Exactly. You know, and monster an example of how that can, you know, charter communications with a chapter 11 CHTR, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the top five cable companies here in the US, they were a chapter 11 exit after the 08 crash. I think they came out in 13 or 14 exit around 30 bucks. And the stock is where is it now? Like 300 bucks maybe or something, or maybe higher than that. So if you can, these really, if you're going to play a chapter 11 area, it's basically we like playing in those really solid companies that used to be have great brands. Yeah, it's like it would have been a good business if not for all the debt. Right, right. We love it. I remember the we had the dot com crash, the, the telecom and the telecom you know bubble too, the internet crash. There were a lot of Chapter Elevens that came out of that in the telecom industry, and that was a, a really good time to invest in those exits that time. Very cool. Now, do you do any um, shorting? Well. <laughs> Uh, you know, I used to. I'll do a lot of it. Yeah. But a part of the history of Geo, if you look between maybe 2010 and 14, we were a part of a kind of movement to basically expose a lot of uh, Chinese frauds that came to the list of the US. Oh, okay. And I think we basically wrote about 12 or 14 of them. And they all went, to, I think they all went to zero. There's a, there's a documentary about that called The China Hustle. Which I saw I, that. that. Are you in that? The back of my head was, <laughs> but, <laughs> but my partner at the time, Dan David, was the orator of that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw that years ago when that came out. Yeah, I remember that one. And so we did a lot of shorting then, and we had a team in China doing on-the-ground investigations. And then that kind of parlayed into opening my eyes to not just these China companies, but also to the pump-and-dump schemes in the U.S. that would take place. And we exposed about 22 of those companies. I'm amazed that the SEC allowed that to happen, where they just allowed these Chinese companies to just dump shares in the U.S. market and blatantly lie about all everything that they were saying. Well, they're still doing it, I think. But here's a tough position the SEC was in, right? So you have a situation where if these companies go public in the U.S., whether it's a lot of them with reverse mergers, but they're getting an audit sign off. They're having the legal team sign off. So the auditor sign off, legal team signs off. You have the IR team bring it in. Right, and they're all in on the fraud. Well, yeah, maybe not knowingly, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the SEC puts itself into it, is in itself a little pickle, like a legal pickle themselves. Are they going to believe the short sellers or are they going to believe these the teams that have already got these companies that have an audit and a legal team signing off on the, on the numbers? Gotcha. I don't know. There's probably, and furthermore, they're not investigating these companies the way we are. So right. The geo investing against a maybe an auditor signed off, a KPMG or something. 
You were actually sending people over there to say, is this true? And investigate on the ground. Yeah. We would actually interview employees, nearby companies to the company. We would actually do, we would put cameras up and film things because a lot of these companies were manufacturing companies or we would have trucks coming in and out of their facilities to deliver stuff. And there was nothing going on. There was this one situation where there was a cemetery company. <laughs> we actually had our investigator. We didn't believe they owned the cemetery that they said they owned and the land. So we sent our investigator to buy a couple of cemetery plots, got the receipts to show that it wasn't, it was a different company that owned these plots, that owned these. Oh man. So we have, I have two cemetery plots in China somewhere, but that was so, crazy. So what's your opinion on China now? Do you think it's basically uninvestable because the financials can't be trusted? I think it's uninvestable, man. Yeah, I really do. I don't think, it's been so long. The last deep dive I probably did was 2014, 15. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a lot easier to do the due diligence because you could basically, a lot of these companies were not internet companies. They were kind of brick and mortar companies where you go on the ground and prove the fraud. Mm-hmm. So you didn't necessarily, you could do the on the ground due diligence, compare the, the numbers to the SEC documents and get some idea there was fraud there. But you also had access to financial filings in China too. And you could compare those numbers to what you were getting, what they were reporting in the SEC documents. That yeah. process that is a lot harder now to get those to get what you need to get. So it's harder to prove that. And a lot of these companies are, are technology companies or internet companies where how do you prove that fraud now? Right. Yeah. And it's just murky, man. You can see the way these stocks are moving sometimes. The pump and dumps that still happen in the space. Mm-hmm. It's just not natural. And I just I don't think the space is investable anymore for, for the most part. But yeah, I don't know what's going to... There's just so much opportunity right now in U.S. companies. And it's easy, you can trust the financials to, to some degree. That why bother with that? Right. And even shorting China stocks is... At that time, when we were doing the shorting, everybody cared. So... If you would short a stock and write about it and really prove it, eventually the company would have would be proven wrong. That the exchanges would halt the stock, delist it. The SEC would get in there and get involved. But now it seems that the markets, the SEC and the capital markets are allowing the market to take care of that all okay. that process. Which I'm not saying is horrible, but you don't see the halts. You don't see the same. So there's a lot of risk to being short these companies. At this point, if after all the scams that we've seen, if you're still buying Chinese stocks, I guess the um, SEC's attitude is like buyer beware. It's on you, dude. Yeah, and it's also a lot of these, a lot of the IPO kind of money is coming from these Chinese stocks, so it's 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 good for Wall Street. Mm, that's a good point. If you think about it that way too, I look. I wish there was a better way that they could police this. I mean, you can't discriminate and say you can't list here for China, right? If you can list from yeah, different, I don't think that's legal to do that. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. I think though they could make a higher bar, and there the Congress passed some bill a couple of years ago, I think, or three years ago maybe, to set some requirements to how the rules that these Chinese companies would have to follow to make, to stay listed here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's really being applied. Yeah, so. if they did try to overregulate it, that would have a lot of bad unintended consequences that would affect listings for all foreign companies and they could be legitimate companies that want to raise capital here. Yeah, yeah you're right. I, I, I think that there's this situation where too, though, where the, the, even the filing standards though, man, like for, for a US company, it seems like the filing standards are much more stringent than for foreign companies. A foreign company, you can put out a semi-annual and an annual and you're okay with it, right? Right. A US company has to put out quarterly reports. 
Yeah, and I, Sarbanes-Oxley has certainly increased the the amount of things you have to deal with to get listed here and stay listed here. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that has affected the quantity of microcaps that are available in the United States? I think it's there's still there's a good 10,000 stocks still out there. It's always been that, really. And between North America and, and Canada to invest in, just more of them are on the OTC now, probably. Gotcha. Than before. I haven't done the, you know, the stats yet on that, but I, I play a lot in the OTC market personally. Super interesting. So before we wrap up here, do you have anything you wanted to add for the audience? Well, I just want to I just want to stress that if you are interested in getting involved in microcap investing, do your own homework to understand we think it's an advantage to be investing in that area, like at least allotting some capital to it. Don't listen to the media or the rhetoric out there. Don't look at the indexes to judge what's going on. And even though right now we are in a situation where there's a lot of favor, that's the time to look at these companies. And there is this underbelly now on underneath everything you're seeing in the indexes that you're seeing how bad the market is in the small cap land. There are a crazy amount of companies that are really well-run companies, value companies, GARP, growth and reasonable price doing really well in that space. And eventually those companies are going to make up the index. When those stocks go up high enough, they're going to be in that in the indexes. You want to get in these stocks before they get there. <laughs> yeah. And then you probably see massive multiple expansion once they enter one of the indexes, even if it's yeah. like a small cap index, it has to help tremendously. The other thing I would say, man, is like, don't be afraid to invest in great tools to, to help you get the information faster. Do the hard work. Automation is great and screens are great, but getting in, in nano cap land, you get rewarded for turning over rocks and mm. for going beyond screens. Mm. And, and that's what we're doing a lot of geo investing. We're just sitting there every day reading press releases and reading SEC filings, conference call transcripts. And that's if you do that, you will be rewarded. And so instead, I am I'm creating some tools, man. So be ready for that. I'll be launching soon to help kind of do all that. Oh, awesome. You and I can maybe talk about that later at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really it. So you can find me at the geoinvesting.com is my is was the site that we founded 10 years ago or so. It's a site where we publish our research for our members. Um, it includes reports, uh, video interviews with management teams. Uh, we do uh, morning emails, weekly emails, a monthly kind of event, uh, live event on a Zoom to wrap everything up. We're very active in this space. Uh, and I think uh, it's, if you're going to invest in Meyercap companies, and you're looking for a source to help you get through all the it's a tough terrain. We're I think we're a great option for that. So awesome. Well, this sounds like some great resources. It's been great having you on today, and uh, thank you for your time. No, oh, this has been awesome, man. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.